It is well with my soul because the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. He will always be with me on every day, uh, even on election day, uh, however that turns out. Um, even in the aftermath, however that turns out. Um, even, even on every day, He is with us. Amen. Let's pray, and uh, and we'll get into the text together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that indeed it is well with our soul because You are with us. You never leave. You never forsake us. You never abandon us, even to the consequences of our sin. You are always right there with us, calling us back to You by Your grace and calling us home one day. And Father, we look forward to the day when we see you face to face. But between now and then, Father, we pray that we might exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, and proclaim your name and be filled with your Holy Spirit to make Christ known to all the nations. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a little kid, one of my favorite games, one of the games we played a lot when I was little, uh, this probably makes me like a thousand years old to some of you who are sitting here, but we played Follow the Leader. Did you ever play Follow the Leader? You know, if you need a refresher, if, you, if, if truly you think your pastor is older than dirt uh, and you need a refresher on how this game is played, go watch the Disney version of Peter Pan, okay? And there's a great little singing bit of uh, one, of the, one of the boys leading the other lost boys in Follow the Leader. And Follow the Leader is a real simple game. It works like this. You get a big group of, of kids, and you appoint one person to be the leader, and everybody else lines up behind him or behind her, and you take the everybody following on a trip. And you do uh, all kinds of weird things that you want them to imitate. You know, so maybe you take three steps by jumping, and everybody who doesn't jump is out. And, uh, and then maybe you, you know, pat your head and, uh, and rub your stomach, and anybody who can't do that is out. And then you finally, eventually, as you're following the leader, you get down to the leader and one other person, and that person is the winner and becomes the new leader to start a new game, right? And it's fun. If you're, you know, if you're five, it's great, right? Um, and the passage we're looking at today, uh, here in Hebrews 13, is about following our leader, Jesus Christ. And it gives us three key ways that we need to, to follow the leader and walk in the way that he calls us to. And so I want to jump into the text, and the first one has to do with following him faithfully to the end. So if you've got your Bible open, we're in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 7 to 9 is what we're going to look at first. So look at these verses with me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by strange, by diverse and strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. 
Now, I love verse 7. Uh, and the, if you look at it, there's a command at the beginning of it. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Uh, do you have any idea why the apostle might be encouraging them to remember their leaders? Because remember is kind of a strange verb to use with reference to people who are present in their midst, isn't it? And I think the reason the apostle picks that particular word is that the, the, the leaders that they had once upon a time, the guys who originally founded their church, uh, the men who taught them are not around anymore. And it's possible that maybe they, they passed away and they went into glory peacefully. But I think it's more likely, given the context of Hebrews, of persecution and people who are suffering as a result of their faith in Christ, that he tells them to remember because these guys went to their reward through martyrdom. And he is telling them, remember your leaders. Remember these guys who went down swinging for the cause of Christ. And he gives them in that same verse, in the second half, we get two more con commands. First of all, consider their way, the outcome of their way of life. And secondly, imitate their faith. That is, look at these guys. Reflect on the way that their life ended, and then you do what they did. You die the way they die. You imitate the way they went out. And in verse 8, he tells us, he gives us a reason why. Uh, how many of you all have memorized Hebrews 13.8? All right, in Awana or something else. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I kind of learned that verse in isolation. And I bet some of you did too. But the point that he's making with that verse, that Jesus Christ is unchanged and unchangeable is that there's a temptation to think that, well, we're under pressure right now, we're having difficulty, we'll just shift some things around. We'll change it up a little bit, and that will uh, lessen the pressure, that will reduce the persecution that we're dealing with. And, and the apostle is saying, no, Jesus Christ is still the same incarnate Savior that He has always been. And we, our faith does not need an update. Now, maybe the way that we talk about it with people or the way that we present it to someone, you can adapt that. But the faith itself, the content and the person upon whom it is, is based do not need adjustment. Amen? We need to hold true to, if you'll forgive me, the old-time religion. You've got to hold to it faithfully, just as these guys who went to the stake for it did, is the idea. That because Jesus has not changed, then look at the next phrase, verse 9, do not be carried away by, the, the ESV says, um, diverse and strange teaching. 
Okay, or NIV, I think, reads strange and varied teaching. Uh, he's making a conclusion from verse 8 because whenever the church gets under pressure, there are people who start promoting the idea that what's needed as the solution to persecution is not continuing to preach the gospel once for all delivered to all the saints not transforming the culture through the power of the gospel, but conforming the message to the people in the culture. So that nobody is confronted with the need to be transformed. And if you do that, that's certainly the easier path. Let me give you just one example from recent years. There was a pastor from up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a few years ago, um... He is now Oprah Winfrey's favorite pastor, which if that's not discrediting enough, um, the reason he became Oprah Winfrey's favorite pastor is he began teaching his people. Now remember, this guy is a guy who claims to be an evangelical. Evangelical used to be about the gospel. That's what the word means from evangel, the gospel. This is a guy who claims to be an evangelical Christian who began preaching to people that what Jesus has to say in the New Testament about hell, he didn't actually mean it. And by the way, there are over 160 references to hell in the New Testament, the vast majority of them on the lips of Jesus. But somehow, the guys in the New Testament... They didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't mean it. But random dude from Grand Rapids, Michigan, he knows. He has the word from God, and he knows. And he began to preach that because he felt that what we really need to do at a time when lots of people in America no longer embrace the Bible as revealed truth from God is just go ahead and change the Bible to whatever I think. That's an example of, to use the biblical term, diverse and strange teaching. Or strange and varied teaching. The word varied or the word diverse means it has the idea of some different variety of what the, than what the Bible has in its pages. Some different way of thinking and believing And if Jesus Christ has not changed, and he hasn't, and if he will not change, and he won't, then you need to hold to what's in the book. Amen? You've got to hold to what's in here. Even if that road is easier and will make you more popular, and even if you can be Oprah Winfrey's favorite pastor and spend a lot of your time now surfing instead of preaching the Word of God, Even if that will result, guess what? It is still worth it to hold to what the Scripture teaches. Because Jesus Christ has not changed. And we need to be faithful to Him all the way to the end, whatever the end is. Whether it's rapture, or martyrdom, or cancer, or whatever it is, you hold fast to the faith 
delivered to you by the people who taught you. Amen? In fact, Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel from the one you received, don't you believe it? You hold on to what you originally taught. Because what you originally taught was true. And the point is, you know, I don't know how many of y'all, I like a lot of old military guys, and they have, a, they have an expression in the military. You've probably seen this. You maybe even seen this on, or have it on a tattoo somewhere. It says, death before dishonor. It's a good motto. If you're, a, if you're a Green Beret or part of the 10th Mountain Division or part of the United States Marine Corps and you've got one of those swords somewhere in a closet, you know, uh, death before dishonor is a good motto. But you know what? As a Christian, it's also a good motto. That rather than dishonor the Lord, I will go to my death. I will go to my death rather than dishonor Christ. I will not escape persecution and, and for the sake of my own comfort and in the same way dishonor the Lord. I won't do it. That's the exhortation that's here. And, uh, and if you're going to do that, you're going to need strength. Amen? And you're going to need strength that, as verse 9 tells us, come not from food, but by grace. Where do you get that kind of strength? Um, you get it from Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, look at verses 10 through 14 with me. He says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, if you look at verse 9, you'll see in the last half of the verse, the apostle contrasts being strengthened by grace versus foods that don't benefit those devoted to them. And it's a little confusing until you read verses 10 to 14 and understand the contrast that he is making between those who have received Jesus' sacrifice and those who are offering sacrifice at the temple through the lesser priests that serve there. You see, in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, there were different kinds of sacrifices. There were some sacrifices, like, for example, a fellowship offering. If you wanted to come and offer praise to God, you would offer a fellowship offering at the tabernacle or at the temple. And you would take this goat, or you would take these doves, or a sheep, um, or a bull, if you were really thankful, you offered a bull, and you would go and you would celebrate and you would sacrifice this animal as a fellowship offering. And uh, the priest would slaughter it, and, uh, and they would take the blood and splash it on the altar, and they would burn part of the parts of it on the altar, and then you would take the animal itself as a part of a fellowship offering and the priest would receive part of it to cook and eat 
as part of his support and livelihood. He would be fed from the offerings of the temple. But then also you as an individual would have this enormous party and you would invite everybody to give praise to God for what blessings you had and you would eat the sacrificial animal together in celebration of uh, what God had done for you. In fact, there's an aspect of that fellowship offering that we're of, of celebrating through a meal, your relationship with God, that we celebrate when we take communion. That there's, a, there's an aspect of, hey, uh, God has saved us, He has delivered us, and we are in fellowship with God, and we're celebrating that through a meal that we eat together. Okay? Uh, and so there were certain sacrifices like that that you could eat from. But there were certain other sacrifices that you very explicitly were not allowed to eat any portion of it. And one of those was a sin offering. And if you had sinned and needed to be restored to relationship with God, what you would do is you would take the animal and you would have it slaughtered there at the temple and they would pour out the blood again. And then they would take the body and they would burn it outside on a trash heap outside the camp. So when they were out in the wilderness, they would have an area for the disposal of all these dead sacrificial animals. And, and if you can imagine, the smell of all that burning stuff was pretty rancid, right? But So that you had to get it outside the camp. But the idea also of being outside the camp was that your sin was being taken away from you and being destroyed outside where you lived. And so it was removed from you. But you couldn't eat from it, because, you, because it symbolized, again, your sin. So you're not wanting to be consuming and participating in your sin anymore. Right? And so you couldn't eat from it. And so in these verses, the apostle is drawing an analogy for us. He's saying that Jesus is like our sin offering, that he is our sin offering. He suffered outside the city of Jerusalem in the same way that the sin offerings were disposed of outside the city. And with his blood, he cleanses us from sin, just like the sin offerings cleansed from sin, only better. And just like the Levitical priests couldn't eat from a sin offering at the temple, so they they who have not to this day accepted Jesus' sacrifice for their sin, and so they cannot get cleansing from God at the heavenly altar that we have access to through faith in Jesus. See, everything, everything that Moses and the priests and everybody built Uh, at the tabernacle was just a shadow of the heavenly reality uh, up above. And so God told Moses, make it according to the pattern of things that you saw on the mountain. Well, the things he saw on the mountain were things in the presence of God in heaven. And, And the book of Hebrews has already told us earlier in the book that Jesus' blood enables us to enter through his offering of sacrifice into the presence of God. And, he, and so that's what he's talking about when he says we have a, a sacrifice that those who serve at the tent, meaning at the tabernacle, or those who serve in the temple, have no right to eat from. 
because it's only through Jesus' sacrifice that ultimate sin offering is made and paid for on our behalf. And so those who have rejected Jesus don't have their sin taken away. And he says also further, extending the analogy a bit, he says that since Jesus has suffered for you outside the camp, shouldn't you be willing to suffer also for him the kind of disgrace he bore on your behalf? Let us go to him, therefore, outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, or bearing the reproach, as the ESV has it, he bore for us. You know, to be executed in the ancient world was a shameful thing. According to the Jewish law, anybody who died the way Jesus died was counted under the law as cursed by God. And when Jesus died, he dies naked and bleeding and hanging in public with a sign of mockery over his head. Hail, King of the Jews. It's a disgraceful thing to be killed that way under both Roman law and Jewish law. And the writer to the Hebrews says, if that's how we've got to go out, And let's remember that our sins were carried away from us by Jesus when he was killed outside the city. And if he takes away our reproach before God, then we can bear reproach on his behalf. Because his sacrifice gives us nourishment, spiritually speaking, and strength to endure what we could not otherwise endure ourselves that's what he means about being strengthened by grace and not by food and and that's not enough encouragement we get a little more from verse 14 look at verse 14 and and this is one of my favorite verses in this passage he says for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's telling us a couple things. First of all, do you know what your primary identity is? It isn't that you're a man, or that you're a woman, or that you're an American, or what job you have, or what what age you are or where you live, or how many kids you have, or how many grandkids, or how many great-grandkids, or uh, if, you're, if you're really up there, great-great-grandkids. You know, I mean, it isn't, our identity is not wrapped up in those things. Are those things important and valuable and, and blessings from God? Sure they are. But our identity, first and foremost of which everything else is not even second, is that you are a Christian. You are a child of God. And that you are a citizen, therefore, of heaven. Amen? And and so he's saying, remember that here, none of this stuff, none of this stuff 
is of ultimate importance because we are living not for this life, but for the fact that we will dwell in the city that is to come. And in fact, if you, if you understand your Bible at a deep level, what you understand is that the city all through the Old Testament and through much of the New is not a place of blessing. The first city is founded by Cain. And it's founded explicitly in rebellion against God's command. And then after, after, the, uh, after the flood comes and wipes out everybody for their wickedness, what is the first thing they set about doing? They build themselves a tower up to heaven at the center of a city that becomes known, they, they call it Bob El, the gate of God. God looks down and sees it and he calls it Babel confusion, <laughs> right? Because they are fundamentally confused, not only language-wise, which God does as judgment against them to, de- to, to limit the amount of evil that men are able to do as they unite together, but also because they are confused about what they're doing. They say, we're going to build a tower up to God. God says, well, let's go down and see that, that thing down there. <laughs> okay. And it's a little Hebrew humor that they think they've got, they've got this thing all the way up to the Lord, God says, oh, we've got to take a few steps here uh, to get down to where we can even figure out what it is they're doing, right? And, and then, in addition to that, that city becomes the, the, the foundation of a civilization known as Babylon. And Babylon, for its entire existence, is devoted to rebellion against God and the worship of demons, And it becomes a byword in the scripture for all of human civilization devoted to rebellion against God to a point that in Revelation chapter 18, you have the lament for the fall of Babylon, the great city, which is finally in the final judgment of God thrown down and destroyed. All of wicked humanity is thrown down and destroyed. And it's personalized as this great prostitute, Babylon. And throughout the, throughout the scriptures, the city is not the place that you are to experience God's blessing until you come to the New Testament and the announcement that there will be a new city that will be founded in which righteousness dwells and where no one wicked will ever be allowed in and in fact there are gates but they are never shut because nothing evil is ever permitted to enter there and he says we are living our lives not to be exalted not to be popular not to be like lot living as a righteous person in the midst of wicked people and being tormented day by day as he was by the wickedness of the people all around him, but looking to the city that is to come. The city, as the scripture says, that has foundations. Amen? The city that lasts. The eternal city. The city of God. Now, I told you at the beginning there are three ways we need to follow the leader, Jesus Christ. And the first one is that we hold faithfully to him all the way to the end. 
And the second one I've been talking about here for the last few minutes that is being strengthened by grace in Jesus' sacrifice as we look to the city that is to come. And the third is in verses 15 to 16, which is worshiping him with your lips and your life. Uh, If you read with me uh, again here, please. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are are pleasing to God. Uh, Verse 15 is all about your lips, about what comes out of your mouth. And what should be coming out of a Christian's mouth continually, by the way, if you, have your, if you have your Bible open and you have a pen, look at, let's see, in the ESV, it is the one, two, three, four, five, sixth word, continually. Through him, then, let us continually, continually. Can I say that again? Continually continually offer up praise to God with our mouth. The apostle calls it the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And in other words, that we should not be afraid to give praise in public to the God who loves us and saves us and is one day taking us home should not be afraid to acknowledge God and to give him praise. And if you know Jesus, you should be proclaiming his praises with your mouth because of his grace to you. His name and his greatness should be on your lips and on mine. You know, one of the weirdest things about church, I mean, honestly, one of the weirdest things about church is that Church is one of, the one, one of the few places in all of our culture where adult men and women will stand up and sing. I mean, think about that. You know, if they play the national anthem at a football game, most people will stand up, and if they're in the military and they're in uniform, they will salute, and if they're not, they will put their hand over their heart. And then we kind of mumble our way through the national anthem, right? Mm-hmm. Especially that part about rockets, red glare. You know, we get real quiet on that, right? And we, and we, but we'll sing there. Or maybe if we're at a baseball game, you know, we'll stand up for the seventh inning stretch, and we'll sing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," right? Or if you're in Boston, you'll sing "Sweet Caroline," right? And which is weird, uh, right? I mean, that's you know, when did Neil Diamond become uh, the cultural touchstone, right? But, <laughs> but nonetheless, right? Um, two kinds of people in the world, those who love Neil Diamond and those who are normal. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> but in any case, sorry, if you love that song, I apologize. Don't email me, all right? <laughs> but um, but we, don't, we don't do that very often, right? And yet every week when you come into the church, what do we invite you to do? To stand and to sing, Right? And that's weird from the perspective of our culture, right? But you know what it is, according to the Bible? Normal. It's normal. Why? 
because we have a lot to praise God for. And, you know, here's the thing. I, I, I very seldom am without words about very much of anything. I mean, you can ask my opinion about almost anything, and I'll have something to say, right? But sometimes when it comes time to actually try to put words in my mouth on how to praise God, I don't really know how to do that exactly. And, and I find a lot of people don't, don't really know how to do that either. You ever hear somebody pray like this where they have just as about every third word when they pray? Lord, we just want to thank you and we just want to, you know, you don't understand? We don't really know how to talk to the Lord. And when we sing, though, we get words. That somebody smarter than us or more poetic than us, or frankly, if you use the Psalms, more biblical than us, <laughs> has been able to put together, and now we have a language that we can use to give praise to God as we ought to. So, word of encouragement, if you don't have a hymnal at your house, you ought to get one. You ought to read some of those. And when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, right? So whether I got smooth sailing, peace like a river, or whether I have got giant waves crashing over the boat, I will praise the Lord, right? Um, we praise the Lord with our lips and we remind ourselves of what he has done for us. We remind ourselves of what he has done. And, and that's, a, that's a strengthening exercise for us and for our faith. Uh, but worship is not just a verbal reality. It's not just something that comes out of our mouth. It's also something that comes out of our heart and into our life. And that's what verse 16 is about. He says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Okay? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. In other words, the stuff that we have, possessions, money, time, etc., do not belong to us. Amen? That we have all of them on loan from God. And we are given them as stewards to utilize them to bring God glory and to praise Him with as we live our lives. There are tools that are given to you and to me that we might worship God with our life. And He says, as you do good for other people, as you share with other people from out of the abundance of what you have, it's a sacrifice that God is pleased with. It's a sacrifice that God is pleased with. You want to worship God? It's not just with your mouth. It's also with your life. Amen? That our whole life is meant to be an act of worship. Why? Because Jesus has taken away our sin. And he has given us a home in heaven. 
And we have an unchanging Savior who has made to us unchanging and unchangeable promises that are going to come true. And so we live our life in that expectation, knowing that no matter what happens to us, we're going to the Lord, right? So, Paul, so we can say like Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love that. That if I live, I live for the enhanced glory of God now. And if I die or if I'm killed or whatever happens to me, God is also glorifying himself in that. And if I actually get killed, it's the best thing that could possibly happen to me. Because I'm going to the king's country. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and precious word, for your promises which last, for the fact that we serve an unchanging and unchangeable Savior who has given us eternal grace through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and has taken them away from us and has destroyed them that we might enjoy our home with you forever and ever. And Father, we pray that as we close out this service that the offering of the fruit of our lips would be great, that we would proclaim your name and your greatness with our mouth, And then leaving this place would also proclaim your greatness and all you have done for us with our lives. And Father, we thank you for all that you do and all that you have done and all that is yet coming to us. In Jesus' name, amen.